0: Okay, looks like we're all ready, so if you will, grab a Bible, go to the New Testament. Actually, I'll I'll zero in a little more than that, but we're going to be in the Gospels, all four of the Gospels, before the night's over. I usually try not to do hop, skip, and jump kind of Bible study where we're all over the place and we don't zero in anywhere, but tonight I'm going to take a particular Topic, and we're going to look at several different passages that support that. So you can start off in Matthew chapter 14, and uh, we'll get there in a moment. Have you ever had a chance to meet one of your heroes? Uh, sometimes that's a kind of a discouraging thing because you find out our heroes really are just human. But I first heard and had to start reading. The works of Richard Foster, a Quaker pastor, and now he's a professor, or now he's not even that, I don't think, but became a professor. But uh, Richard Foster wrote a book entitled Celebration of Discipline. And when I was in college back in the 80s, our professor had us read his work. So when I was working on that last part of my formal schooling, I had to get a conference in that had to do with the area that I was focusing in on, and so I started checking around and saw this conference. It was a limited admission conference in Winter Park, Colorado. Now, that's not a bad place to have a conference, just so you know, and uh, at the time, I was living in deep south Texas, and so I had the opportunity... I, I got in early enough. I got signed up for that. And so I went in, and there were about, I'm, I don't know exactly, I'm going to say uh, conservatively speaking, there were maybe 150 people there for that conference, in addition to the team that was leading it. And Richard Foster was the one who was the primary leader of that. And it was a conference that's tied to some of what we're talking about tonight. And it gave me the opportunity because it was a small group and because of the focus of it all. Uh, I found myself walking down one of the trails in Colorado with my hero, uh, Richard Foster, just the two of us talking and walking. Uh, and as I was doing that, I was uh, I was like a little kid, to be honest with you. I was nervous and, I, you know, don't say dumb stuff. And, you know, I did all that. I said dumb stuff, I know. But uh, in the conversations with him, Uh, he he took me back to some of the things that I'd read and by that time I'd read many of his works and I began to sense from him that there was more to him than meets the eye there was more to him than meets the written page Uh, there was this deep sense of of Christian love but wisdom and it was just an amazing experience And, and about that time not long after that uh, I got one of his books. It was newer that was out. And in that, he talked about one of the um, one of the experiences of his own life in prayer. And he wrote this. Well, I'm not sure when he wrote it, but the, what he wrote about was an incident that was part of his life that occurred while he was in Great Britain. He was going to do a conference there. And while he was there the uh, terror attacks of 9-11 occurred. And so he was away from the United States, and yet he had people who were in that area, and he was certain that many of his friends were probably killed in, in the process, but he was where he couldn't get to anything. And so what he did with that is he he just he couldn't fly anywhere because, you know, they shut down all the flights. And so he just uh, had a friend of his take him as far as he could with the road, and then he started walking back into some of the... Uh, outlying countryside in Great Britain, working his way towards, uh, I believe it was Cuthbert's Cave, which has a long uh, history in church. And his intent was to go as far back up in there as he could and get as alone as he possibly could. And he said as he got back into that area, he started rehearsing these questions with God. How, How could this happen? What about my people? And where do we go from here? And the point of that is that he went as far as he could to be as alone as he could so that it just, he and God could get down to business with some of those questions that he had. So how hard are you willing to work to get alone with God? That may not seem like that big of a question until you start examining the landscape of our lives, and how busy we are, and how much input we have in our lives on a day-to-day basis. How hard are you willing to work to get alone with God? And maybe the follow-up question, should we even bother with that? And with that, I say welcome back to praying with Jesus. We have now gone through the model prayer as Luke lays it out. Jesus has taught us something about prayer and how to do it, but now I want us to pick up on jesus in the practice of prayer it's now not what he says we'll get back to that because i'll ultimately take us through many of the prayers that we find of jesus in the gospels and we'll camp out in the latter part of john's gospel as we look at how jesus prayed but we'll get to all of that but for tonight i want us to look not at the content of his prayer so much as the practice of it so we're going to be in a couple of different places um Here's the way I want to say it tonight. I titled this message, Solitary Refinement. Um, I have a grandson. I've told you about him. My wife tells me I'm not talking about my granddaughter enough, but see, she's perfect, and my grandson's a problem, so uh, it's easier to talk about him. Lauren, our daughter, was telling us about having to put Declan in timeout. Now, y'all know what timeout is? Okay, we didn't do time out at my house at my house. Time out was you're through living and now your time's up. that's how we call it not <laughs> but I guess the uh you know modern child rearing stuff we we opt for time out, and so my grandson gets pushed into time out from time to time because he's just like his mama is and uh so she was talking about some things that happened at uh, home where she he was just misbehaving him, she put him in the corner, is that where he started laughing at her Teresa is that yeah, so apparently it 's not working with that boy but why do we put children in time out what 's the intent give them time to think about what 's going, going on? What else? I heard something else get to get their attention what what y'all say Discipline. Okay, that's the word I uh, was thinking. But it's only discipline if it works, right? So if you put a kid in time out and he doesn't change his behavior, uh, that's just solitary confinement. But I want us to talk about prayer as a step of solitary refinement. So look with me, if you will to these three different passages. I already told you Matthew chapter 14. And then you can uh, you know, put a, uh, one of your pieces of paper or something there and then look, turn over to Luke chapter 5 and also Luke chapter 6. And then eventually we'll be in Mark and also John because I didn't want to leave any of these gospel guys out tonight. So, um, So let me just say while you're getting to Matthew 14 or Luke 5 or Luke 6, Uh, Let me just say, this could be a little bit awkward tonight. I don't mind telling you that. The reason I say this could be a little bit awkward is because the kind of prayer now that Jesus models for us uh, does not fit into our nice, neat, little, uh, formulaic kind of praying. I know that I've done this in here before. One of the ways that we were taught to pray when I was younger was the 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 letters A-C-T-S. Adoration, you finish for me. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Okay, so here's a question for you. Where does listening come in in that formula? And so part of my concern is that we've trained up generations of Christian people who believe that prayer is all talking. So my question is, again, how hard are you willing to work to get alone with God in prayer, or for prayer, if we want to say it that way? So this might get a little bit awkward as we go forward. I'm just going to say that's not a bad formula. I'm not suggesting we throw it out. But I am suggesting, I'm not suggesting, I'm accusing it of being... uh, Incomplete. It doesn't give us a full picture of what balanced prayer needs to look like. So, uh, I'll just add to that before we jump into these texts. Our society loves to fill space with noise. You, <laughs> uh, I remember as a kid growing up, we had FM and AM radio, and that was it. You remember having to search. I'm looking at it here, and most of y'all are at least my age. So uh, you remember having to search for a radio channel? But you know now our cars come in, so you don't have to search. You just have to hit one button, and it'll take you to the kind of music you want or talk radio or whatever it happens to be. We have more. (laughs) Teresa and I wanted to watch the Astros last night because I'm an Astros fan. And uh, so one of the TVs, we, we got one of those HD antennas right so that we could get locals Programming, and on that particular one, it didn't get the channel that the game was on. And so I sat in while she was unpacking her bags and all that stuff, having been gone. And and so I I started the process where it scans all of the channels out there. Do you know how many channels get picked up with an HD TV? Seven thousand. I don't. I don't. It was. It was a bunch. We just love to put all kinds of stuff out there. To fill the space with noise. How are we going to hear from God if we don't intentionally do whatever we have to do to step into a mode of prayer that says, I'm going to listen? Which brings us to this solitary refinement kind of thing. What solitary refinement is in prayer is essentially just say that we need to create a space for listening. We need to create a space in our lives where we are insulated, and I'm going to use this word a lot tonight, where we are isolated from all of the other stuff that's out there. That retreat or conference that I was talking about with Richard Foster was one that was geared toward silence. And it fit the the studies that I was doing, and of course I had to go and I had to write all kinds of papers and all that kind of stuff based on that. But I chose that one because of what we're talking about here tonight. We are so programmed when it comes to prayer to fill the space. Now I'm not. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not. I'm not uh, beating up on what we do at all. Okay. I'm good with it. Uh, So this is not. It's just an example of what I'm talking about. We even print out a prayer list for us so that we make sure that we have plenty to pray for during our prayer time that's fine i matter of fact i think that's great i think it helps us to pray together as a church so i'm not knocking that but i am saying if that's the sum total of our prayer lives we're missing something and jesus is the one who's going to prove that to be true for us As we go forward, so when I talk about solitary refinement in prayer, what I'm saying is each of us needs to find a place that we have solitude from all of the noise of the life that's around us. Teresa and I bought a house in Lumberton, Texas, on the south end of town. There are trees everywhere. We had a standard size uh, lot, 30 something trees, uh, pine trees on our lot, pine trees and oak trees and that kind of stuff. Uh, And we bought it because we walked out in the back and it was just like, wow, look at this, you can sit back here, and uh, we also didn't necessarily get it that when we bought that, it was between two highways, okay, that's not a problem, because most of the time, the wind blowing through the trees, you couldn't hear the cars, but at two o'clock in the morning, you could hear every car on every road a long ways away. We just have a lot of noise, and we have to choose to isolate, it's like the old um, quiet time game we used to play with kids. You know, when I finally learned to be rebellious was when I figured out the quiet game. The quiet game. I said quiet time a minute ago. The quiet game. Uh, I I learned to be rebellious when I figured out the quiet game was just to get me to be quiet. It wasn't about a game. It was about the teacher wanting her say, not mine. Um, Prayer needs to have quiet built into it. So let's jump in. Luke chapter 6 verse 12. I'm going to read several different verses or or we'll together go to several different places and it's almost the same verse but it's different circumstances in most of these. Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 simply says this, in these days he, that is Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray and all night he continued in prayer to God. Now I'm going to start here and this is where I get this this listening approach to prayer as opposed to filling the space with our own voice. Literally translated, the way this verse is written, uh, if I translate it literally, that last phrase, and all night he continued in prayer to God, literally translated is he continued in prayer, excuse me, in the prayer of God. Now, that's not that much difference. You can see why we've smoothed it out in the translation here because that doesn't necessarily communicate very well in English. But the Greek construction of that there is, according to David Garland, one of the greatest New Testament professors and uh, authors of our time, uh, he said this, that this implies that Jesus speaks to God not for the sake of talking, but to listen. In other words, the way that verse reads and all night he continued in prayer to God sounds like Jesus may be doing all the talking. We just don't really know. In the English translation, there's not enough there for us to settle that, how much talking and how much listening. But the way it's written in Greek, again, implies that Jesus is speaking to God not for the sake of talking, but to listen. So if we, let me just put it this way, if we took away everybody's prayer list, the one that you use on a daily basis, and, and your prayer list suddenly was gone, what would be the content of your prayer? Jesus is laying some foundation for us with this. It's almost written like it is just kind of a passing comment here. We'll find that it's not that at all. But our intent tonight, and one of the things I want to remember, the whole series on Wednesday night is the praying with Jesus, And so we want to model what he did, and part of what Jesus did, again, that verse, he went to the mountain to pray, and there, to paraphrase it, he listened. That's solitary refinement. Can you go and pray and come away the same person you were when you started? That's the need for refinement. So let's do this. When should we pray like this? Let me give you three, a couple of just really relatively quick uh, pieces to hang on to as we go. When should we pray in this solitary kind of uh, moving away from the crowds and moving away from the, uh, the, the noise of our time? When should we do that? Well, one of the times we should do it is when there's a crisis. Now, let's be honest. We all do pretty good praying when there's a crisis, don't we? I mean, nobody has to talk you in to run into Jesus when there's a crisis of some kind, is my guess. That's certainly true for me. But let's look at a few verses. Now We're going to look at one incident from three different gospel writers' perspective. So we start with John chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. While you're turning there, I'll just lay the foundation of this for you. This is right after Jesus has fed the 5,000 with the five loaves and two fish. You remember that story? Y'all with me? I know you're looking for the passage. but So Jesus has fed the multitude, 5,000 men and with five loaves, two fish. The disciples are there. They have to pick up all the stuff. You remember all of that. But at the tail end of that, verses 14 and 15, here's what we read. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the picture is, Jesus does this miracle. Everybody goes, that's what I'm talking about. This guy can do food out of nothing. We eat all we want. He must be from God. Let's make him king. And Jesus sees that. And just with John's input here, It says that he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. But let's look at what Matthew and Mark have to say. So Matthew chapter 14, we're through in John. Matthew chapter 14, verses 21 through 23, same incident. Matthew gives us detail that John doesn't. I'm going to back up and I'm going to read verse 20. So somebody trying to get there, I guess. So verse 20, And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Immediately he, that is Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now let's stop. Same incident How does John describe Jesus' actions? Let me know you're with me, please. (laughs) How did John describe Jesus' actions here? The crowd say, let's make him king, and Jesus withdrew. That's what John said. Matthew gives us a little more detail. Jesus sends the disciples away. I want you to start thinking, why would he do that? And not only does he send the disciples away, then what does he do? He dismissed the crowd, verse 23, and after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain. John told us that. But Matthew says, by himself to pray. Why did he do that? Why did he dismiss the crowds? And why did he go up by himself to pray? We're not through yet. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, same incident. We draw all the way back into verse 45. And I'll pick up reading right there, Mark 6, verse 45. And immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. So far, so good, right? And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. One word question for you. Why? I can't understand you, I'm sorry. He what? To be alone with God. Why was... Go ahead. He needed to be recharged. Nothing like a crowd to suck your energy right out of you, right? I think there's a little more to it. I think those are true. As a matter of fact, we're going to find that's part of Jesus' pattern, right? But, but also, why did he send his disciples away? Because he puts them in boats. And there's another miracle on the tail end of this we're not going to get to tonight. But some would say he put them in the boat so that he could set up the miracle that would happen of him coming across the water to him. right? I, here's what I think. I think it may well be that Jesus and his disciples were going through another one of those temptations like the one Satan gave him in Matthew chapter 4 at the beginning of his ministry. You remember that, where Satan comes at him and says, hey, you know what, let's just cut to the chase. You jump off of the temple, the angels will get you, and everybody will know who you are, and it will all be a done deal. The temptation to a shortcut to accomplish what God had tried or was was doing with him. So this crowd now, for the first time, sees Jesus in a light that is pretty close to being right, and they're ready to make him king. But they want to make him king politically. Jesus didn't come for the political side of it. He came for the spiritual side of it, for the kingdom of God side of it, and this would have been a shortcut that would have taken them actually way off course of what God had done. And I happen to i could be wrong. This is just me. We're just kind of, you know, talking about it together. But I think his disciples may well have been playing into that going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, let's make him king because I'm with him, right? What better way to get to move into the palace than if your best friend gets made king? So Jesus sees that, I believe, and so he sends them off, and he sends the crowd off, which effectively kills the whole uh, euphoria thing. And then he coming off of that steps out of that. And it's a, it's a telling thing that he isolates himself with God, and he goes at that time. That's a crisis in his ministry. And he goes and he spends the night with God in prayer. That hits us, I think, uh, that when we recognize that we're in a crisis, and we know that we need to go to pray. I'll just tell you, when mom told me that uh, her cancer had spread, we found that out as we pulled, or we sat in her living room last Thursday. That's when the word came that it was really spread, and so she's telling me this information and it took me all of five seconds to start praying about, okay, God, what are we going to do with this, right? So we're all pretty good at praying during crises. But the question is, what kind of prayer are we praying in crises? I tend to fill the space with panic-sounding prayers. God, you've got to do something. You're going to lose a good preacher down here if you're not careful. Or, you know, God, this is one of your choice servants. You've got to do something for or, you know, God, so-and-so really needs cash. They're out of money, and they got a lot of money left. We fill space in our crises prayers. But maybe those are the best times for us to go and isolate and listen. Well, let me keep going. I, just, I could give you several examples of my own life out of that, but let's keep going because of the time. Here's another time that we need to have these isolation kind of prayers uh, when we're facing a significant decision. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. I think that's what I started with, right? But let's get the full context on it. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. When when we're facing a significant decision, we ought to have these solitary kind of prayers. Verse 12, in these days he went out on the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. Verse 13, and when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. And then it lists those 12. Just by the way, do you think Jesus made a mistake by picking Judas Iscariot? Okay, the right answer is no, he did not make a mistake. I want you to hear me say that, right? The right answer is Jesus did not make a mistake. But on a human level, on an organizational level, if that was a church and they were picking staff members, somebody down the road would have said that was a mistake, we picked the wrong staff member. So how did Jesus come to pick those 12? It says right there. He went off by himself and he prayed through the night. This is where that Word order is important for us and it's that listening prayer that Dr. Garland mentioned. And so Jesus pulls away from all of the other stimulus and all of the other voices and even these 12 guys, he pulls away from all of that. He spends the night alone with God in prayer. Much of that, according to the way this is written, is listening to what God had to say and he comes out of that and he picks the 12, 11 guys that God would use to carry on the mission of the church when Jesus went back to heaven. This is one of the most intense decisions of Jesus' ministry. And he spends the whole night listening to what God has to say about them. It's possible that Jesus sat there and said, okay, Jesus, uh, okay, God, Father, you know I want Simon Peter. I know that he's got problems, but you know I want him. And Jesus might have talked all night long about the merits of each one of those guys. My suspicion is that it was one of those things where it was this dialogue between God and Jesus, and we come out and he says, here's the guys. That needs to be instructive for us that uh, when we face significant decisions... We pull away this it's time for not the normal approach to prayer. Now I want you to be careful in hearing what I just said. Because I don't want anybody to think that I'm arguing that we don't have to pray when the decisions are not significant. I'm not saying that. I would go so far as to say every decision is more significant than we think because we don't know what's happening tomorrow and what happens with that decision that leads to other things. So I'm not saying that those are not significant, but there are times that we know that this is a big decision we have to decide what to do. Teresa and I are going through that. My brother and I are going through that now with my mom and my dad. What are we going to do with this? You know what I figured out? I don't know the future. It's good for me to know that, right? But God does, and I also know that God loves my parents more than I do. And so he's got some kind of plan in mind for us as it relates to the care for my dad and the care for my mom. And so what I have to do is shut off all of the other stuff, the emotional stuff, the, the, that part of me that is, okay, we've got to figure this out. Okay, so we're going to plan and we're going to, we're going to evaluate and we're going to strategize and we're going to get it all laid out and we'll just have a nice little plan. I have to make all of that shut off in my head and listen to what God has to say. Because of that, one of my all-time favorite passages of scriptures. Well, God uses it to beat me up every once in a while. Psalm 4610. Anybody know what that says? Be still and know that I'm God. Now, there's more to it, but let me me stop there. The be still part typically is for my head. Okay, It's because it's inside of my head that I'm not usually very still. And even in my spirit sometimes, I can be so busy filling space with stuff that I can't hear God's voice. He would have to do a miracle to get through into my head sometimes. And so Jesus models for us, I think, this critical piece of prayer. He lays out before us. When you have these critical decisions, you need to listen. Listen and not fill the space with words. I don't think I told you this. I I know I told you part of it, but when God called us here, uh, we were trying to figure out every step of the way, okay, God, are you in this and are you in this? And we got pretty, probably in the middle of the process as it turns out, and uh, it was was in my head all the time. I was praying about it all the time. And I, I I couldn't be quiet. I, I knew that. I, I caught myself in prayer just all the time, uh, and so finally one day I I uh, went for a walk. And right across the street, matter of fact, it's part of the area that flooded terribly, but right across the main highway from our house uh, was a road that went way back up into the trees, and a lot of homes were way back up in there. But for the most part, I could I could walk two or three miles without really having to deal with any traffic or any. Vehicles or anything, trees hanging over the road and all that kind of stuff. It's really a pretty thing. And so I just went one day, I just went walking and praying. And I was about halfway through that. And I was, God, okay, so I don't know about El Paso. What do you think? And what about this church? And and I was working through all that. And it's like God just smacked me in the head and said, hey, be quiet. Listen. And he gave me insights that I needed. But I was so busy talking that I couldn't hear what he was trying to say. So here's the last one. When should we do this? Periodically. (laughs) It needs to be built into the way we do it. This is Luke chapter 5, verse 16, where it just simply says, it seems like out of nowhere, but verse 16, chapter 5 of Luke's gospel, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. every morning, or almost every morning from 8 to 10 um, I go to uh, the study pastor's study here and I try to get with the Lord to do sermon preparation because um, I know and and Gail and I talked before I even got here I said I want to block off those two hours every day because I know That we all are busy and the pastor's life is busy. And if I don't block off time to do sermon preparation, I won't have it. And we'll be winging it when it comes to sermons. And nobody benefits from that. But here's the problem with that two-hour block. It would be easy for me to count that as my time listening to God for my own personal life. But it's sermon preparation time. I'm trying to listen to God for church life at that point. So one of the things that I've learned is that I have to pull off every once in a while. Uh, one of my mentors early on said, if you don't learn as a pastor, if you don't learn to come apart, you're going to come apart. And there's wisdom in that. But what I have to do is I have to build into that, that stepping back from the whole thing uh, and build into just listening prayer. Spending time with God without me filling the space with words here's what you're going to find and we may talk about this some more going forward maybe not in these studies but in a different kind uh, when you decide to stop and f- stop filling the space with noise <laughs> you'll be surprised at how little things make a lot of noise my house in Lumberton I regularly got up really early to do my time with the Lord Uh, and we had a clock. Teresa had a clock. This was a demon clock. (laughs) Because when I was trying to be quiet and listen to God, I heard this. You'd be surprised at how many clocks like that you have in your house when you start trying to pray and be quiet. And they get loud in those times. And Satan will see to it that there will be people that will interrupt your schedule, And you'll get phone calls, and if if that stuff doesn't happen inside your head, you'll be thinking about all the things you need to do today rather than listening to God. Be still and know that I'm God. So Jesus teaches us by example that we need to pull apart every once in a while. We need to come apart from all of the madness and listen. I hope you'll do that. I hope that you'll build that into your daily schedule. Thank you. You're dismissed.